Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. I write about film over at cupofmo.com and you can find my articles on tech at techuplife.com. If you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes or the Google Play Store, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts and go ahead and subscribe as well as leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it helps us out a lot. And head over to Facebook and Twitter where you can follow us at Celluloid Fiends and go over to Instagram and follow us at Celluloid Fiends Pod. And I am joined tonight by... Hey, Celluloid Fiends, it's Wes Clifton. I'm a writer, I'm a musician, and I'm just a film fanatic. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston, uh, and you can check out my writing over at wdclifton.wordpress.com. So what all have you watched lately, and what physical media have you picked up? Yeah, I have, I have things to report on both of those fronts, actually. Um, so over the past like week or so, I've been catching up on some movies that have been kind of in my backlog for a while. I uh, finally got a chance to sit down with the movie Skyscraper. I'm pretty sure it came out last year, uh, and it stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and it basically just looks like Die Hard on steroids. Did you see the trailer for that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I did, and I want to say that came out. The, the trailer debuted uh, during a Super Bowl halftime okay. show or something like that. And I remember when I saw it, I thought it was a joke. And then I realized, nope, it's not a joke. It's a real film. I have not seen it, though. Well, I was, I won't say pleasantly surprised. I will say it was exactly what I was wanting it to be. Uh, I love just crazy action movies. And. That's what Skyscraper is. And uh, ever since um, Dwayne Johnson started doing movies, I've always wanted him to be more like the action heroes from the 80s and early 90s that I used to love so much. And I think gradually he is becoming that. Like, I just think in some of his more recent fare, he's doing more of the kind of films that I wanted to see him do. And Skyscraper is that. So honestly, man, I really liked it a lot. Like, it was sort of a, a, a an action film in the diehard vein uh which i really love so it was really great and i would recommend it um and then i watched a 2009 movie called ninja that starred scott adkins who is another uh he's like a i guess you'd call him like a b action star but he he's uh just kind of an action hero in the vein of sort of a Dolph Lundgren or a, or a Jean-Claude Van Damme or someone like that. He makes that kind of film. And uh, Ninja had a real canon films feel to it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you could tell that it kind of, at least it seemed to me, to have been very influenced by movies like Enter the Ninja. Uh, but it was just uh, a really entertaining martial arts ninja film. 
Uh, and, and pretty much if Scott Adkins is in it, I just always assume it's going to be a pretty good time. Uh, I can't wait to watch the sequel, which actually stars Shokosugi's son, Kane Kosugi. Uh, so that'll be coming up pretty soon on my, my watch list. And then I caught up with an older film from the early 90s, Kickboxer 3, uh, which I've been trying to get to for quite some time, starring Sasha Mitchell. Uh, most people will know him as the Code Man from Step by Step, but he was actually a, a real-life kickboxing champion, and uh, so he's he's great in those kickboxer sequels. Stepped in for Jean-Claude Van Damme and just did a really great job. And those are some big shoes to fill. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I like his sequels as much as I like the original Kickboxer. I mean, I'm a huge Van Damme fan, but I mean, he did a pretty good job stepping in and and leading the sequels. I've seen Kickboxer 2 and 3. I uh, actually Kickboxer 4 is one of my recent pickups. Uh, So I've got that coming up next, too. But I mean, it's just a great it's a great time. You're basically seeing Cody from Step by Step, only he's beating the crap out of people. That sounds like a blast. It was a blast. Um, and then pickups. I think mostly my pickups were I did go to the Little Shop of Horror um, closing out sale one day and bought way more stuff than I went in there intending to, which is pretty much my MO when I go in that store. Uh, so I won't list all the crazy stuff that I bought. I just said I bought Kickboxer 4 on VHS. Uh, but the, the other things, just kind of the highlights, I picked up... Um, the the animated show Conan the Adventurer. There was an animated Conan show called Conan the Adventurer based around, obviously, Conan the Barbarian that I used to love when I was a kid. And they had the first season on DVD, and so I grabbed that and can't wait to break into that. Uh, I picked up a horror film that was actually one of the first horror movies that I ever remember enjoying when I was a teenager, because when I was growing up, I wasn't super into horror. Uh, it's called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. It's a uh, it's a made-for-TV horror movie, but one that most people hold in pretty high regard, and I do too. Uh, and I picked that up on Blu-ray. And then I picked up a film that I really love, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, which is one of the great Hong Kong gangster flicks of the 80s. I picked that up on VHS as well. So uh, pretty pleased with my haul there. I've heard you talk about that one before, oh, I love but I, I haven't seen it. And then Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, I've heard so many people talk about that, and I've, I've never gotten around to watching it. I, I don't even really know anything about it. Yeah, and it's great. It's a great, especially for a made-for-TV, when I said recent a minute ago, the viewers won't think that I meant it was a recent movie. It's pretty old, but it was a recent uh, retro film series uh, watch-at-home virtual watch party movie. Uh, so that might be why you've heard about it recently. Yeah, well, I I, I think that, but also I, I think it has a cult following or, or something because oh, yeah. I've just I've heard over the years a lot about it. Yeah, it certainly does. And how about you, man? What are your uh, recent watches and recent pickups? So I've been kind of slacking a little bit on the physical media side. I haven't really picked up a lot. It's tough these days, but. Yeah, I know. I need to. I need to. I need to pick up some stuff. Head over to uh, like Amazon, Best Buy, whatever. But I have been watching a lot of movies. I watched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, which yeah. was the. It was a spinoff film that followed the first two seasons, and it was sort of a prequel to the the first season. And it was really disappointing, but it was super David Lynchy, and so it was to me a treat to watch just because of that 
I also watched Countdown, which came out, I think, in 2019. And I remember watching the trailer and it kind of seemed like a neat premise. Uh, the concept behind it is these people started downloading an app and it's called Countdown. And it gives you a countdown timer and tells you when you're going to die. Oh. And people start actually dying when their countdown timer runs out. And it's kind of this investigation into why that's going on. It was not spectacular, but it was a it was a fun shut your brain off and enjoy it kind of film. Okay, yeah, I remember the trailer for that. Yeah, so I I, I don't know if I would fully recommend it, but if you're in the mood for mindless fun, definitely check that one out. What genre of? Oh, it's a supernatural horror film. Okay, it's a horror film. Okay, cool. Uh, I rewatched The Town, which came out, I yeah. can't remember, I think 2010, the Ben Affleck film yeah, yeah. that he starred in and directed. And I watched it in cinemas when it came out. And I feel like I enjoyed it, but I don't think I fully appreciated it when I saw it then. I don't think my, I, I was, all, I've always been a big movie fan, but I don't think my kind of cinematic eye was, was trained well enough to appreciate a lot of its nuances at the time so i I watched that one again because it's on netflix and i checked out the new spike lee joint to five bloods which was phenomenal okay i I saw something about that but i haven't i haven't really delved into even what it's about or anything yet that might actually be beneficial because i went in not really knowing much about it except that it follows a few Vietnam War vets. And that was kind of all I knew. And it was very powerful. It's very relevant. And it's just phenomenally well acted. Okay, cool. I'll probably have to check that out. I remember the trailer looking really cool. Yeah, that one is incredible. And it has some kind of neat retro film throwbacks in it as well which is kind of which is kind of fun you know i love that and now our feature presentation And tonight we are talking about the 1994 Disney film Angels in the Outfield. So this is directed by William Deere, who I have never really heard of before. Turns out of all the films that he's directed, besides this, I've only heard of one, Wild America. Okay. And Angels in the Outfield currently holds a 33% critic rating and a 49% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, both of which I thought were surprisingly low. Me too. I was very surprised by that critic rating. It's it's shocking. Yeah. Uh, it had a budget of $31 million and it made $50.2 million at the box office, which is a pretty good ROI. And this film follows two young foster kids, Roger Bowman and JP, who enjoy sneaking into California Angels baseball games despite the Angels' abysmal record. During a visit with his father, 
Roger asks when they'll be a family again, to which his dad sarcastically answers, I'd say when the angels win the pennant. Taking the statement quite literally, Roger prays to God that the angels will win the pennant. And during a match up against the Toronto Blue Jays, Roger sees an actual angel helping out the angels ballplayers. And lead angel Al explains that his prayer has been answered. Team manager George Knox believes that Roger is good luck and provides Roger and JP season tickets. And Roger's prayer is answered in a very surprising, to Roger at least, way. So had you seen this film before? I had. I had seen it many times when I was a kid. Um, And this was... This was a listener pick, we should point out. Oh, yeah. So this was a listener pick. Uh, yeah. And, you know, oftentimes uh, we just pick films. Wes and I have a massive backlog of films that we're like, oh, we should do this on the podcast. But you know what we love even more than picking the films ourselves? We love it when you guys pick. So if you have a film that you want us to do, the only criteria is that it has to be at least 10 years old. So if you want to know one of us personally, like hit us up. If you don't know us, hit us up on social media at Celluloid Fiends on Twitter and Facebook or Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram, because we would love to review some of these movies that you guys want to hear. Yep, I, I think that's great. We have a couple more listener picks uh, on the list, and and so I, I like doing those. Yeah, I, I watched it um, a lot when I was a kid, and I hadn't seen it in many years, but, but I did have pretty fond, uh, pretty fond recollection of it from when I was a kid. The, the first thing that jumped out to me was somehow in my mind, Christopher Lloyd was in this a lot more than he actually was. Like, I just feel like I remember him being all throughout it, and he really just kind of uh, was just barely in it. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because I I watched this like when it came out in theaters. I didn't remember this, uh, but my mom reminded me of this. I apparently like really wanted to go see it when it came out in theaters and dragged my mom and sister to go see it. And then I loved it so much that uh, my parents gave me a VHS copy of it. So this was one of those films that I watched like over and over as a kid, because, you know, we had a decent number of videotapes, but it's not like we had a a huge selection. It's not like we had streaming services. So, you know, back in the day when you were relying on VHS, laser discs, DVDs, whatever, like you watched what you owned. Uh, But yeah, no, I totally remembered Christopher Lloyd being in this movie the entire time. And he really only has a handful of scenes and, it's just it's very it's very interesting, especially because there are a lot of actors in this film who went on to be incredibly famous. Yes, I was everybody <laughs> in it. I was like, wow, look at all the people that are in this. But it was it was before they were big. And and the, the kind of three big names in this film were Danny Glover, who plays the Angels manager, George Knox, Tony Danza, who is a, an aging baseball player, Mel Clark, and Christopher Lloyd, who plays Al, the head angel. And Christopher Lloyd is barely in this film. He just kind of has a couple goofy sequences. But you know why I think he's so memorable? Because he steals the show yeah, when he really is good. on screen. Yeah, he's really good. and he, he, he was always great. Why do you think he wasn't in this as much? Because, I mean, like when you look at what he made that came out before before this, it was like 
Adam's Family, Dennis the Menace, Back to the Future. Yeah. Yeah, he was a big name. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, without really get digging into the behind the scenes more than I was able to do. I mean, who knows? Maybe he was just in such high demand that he had other projects going on and didn't have a ton of time for this. Or or maybe really it's just that they had written the, the script and, you know, they had mainly wanted to focus on the boys and the uh, and the the Danny Glover character and just kind of got Christopher Lloyd in there for a little added oomph. I don't know. Well, regardless, he definitely gave it some added oomph. Yeah. Yeah. He's great in it. He really is. So a few of the characters in there who, or a few of the actors who went on to become huge stars, Joseph Gordon Levitt plays Roger. I, I don't know what he made before this, but this was definitely one of his first roles. Neil McDonoghue plays Whit Bass. He's one of the Angels players. Adrian Brody plays uh, one of the Angels players. Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. He is in this as an Angels player. And then Roger's dad is played by Dermot Mulroney. Yeah, it was crazy. Like, And also... Uh, um... Maggie uh, is played by, I kept being like, where do I know her from? And then I realized that she is the lady in the park in Home Alone 2 that Kevin McAllister makes friends with. She's the pigeon lady. I was like, okay, oh. all right. I think pigeon lady was probably the pinnacle of her career. Certainly. Uh, that And that was, that was Brenda Fricker. That was her. Right. Her yeah. name. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this movie is just bonkers because of how many people went on to yeah. become enormous Hollywood stars. And I mean, it's kind of funny if you think about what the budget would have been if this were made even just a few years later when they had all yeah. become stars. When they'd all exploded. I mean, it was crazy. And I guess you're right. Like when I was first watching it, I kind of like wondered, but it didn't really give a lot of thought to where this was in those particular actors' careers. But that was just, I was just thinking, man, everybody in this is a recognizable face. There's so many people in this. When Matthew McConaughey came on screen, I was like, what is this? I did not remember him in this at all. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about his presence completely. And it's it's almost like this was a calling card for a lot of those actors. Here's a question. What I didn't look. I wonder if this was before or after uh, Matthew McConaughey's groundbreaking role in Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the new generation or next generation. I need to look. You know, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> you you want to look that up? I'm on it. Okay, you want you got to got a fact check. I, for some reason, I want to say after, but I might be wrong. I also think it was after because if he was making. Angels in the Outfield, somehow I doubt he'd be slumming in Texas Chainsaw 4. Well, I don't know. If there's anything wrong with that. Maybe William Deere saw his performance in Texas Chainsaw, and that's how he got cast in Angels in the Outfield. Maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, You know what? Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, came out in 1995, my friend. So maybe it was 94. <laughs> maybe this was the calling card. For me. This was sort of like his audition tape. 
They were for like, get me Texas McConaughey. <laughs> get me McConaughey. We got to have him for this. Did you see the way he swung that bat? Yeah. Mm. No, seriously. We need him in Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> uh, so of the, but of the, of the kind of three lead stars in this film at the time, uh, Danny Glover, he of course had been in Predator 2, incredibly underappreciated, the color purple and the lethal weapon franchise and favorites of mine. Oh yes. Classics. And Tony Danza was in taxi. Who's the boss baby talk and Ken ball run Two. So speaking of criminally underrated, like predator Two, Danny Glover. Yeah. He is a treasure and I don't think he nearly gets enough credit for being as talented and versatile as he is. You know, man, I agree wholeheartedly. He's another one of those actors that can really do all kinds of different roles and is always adds a lot to any movie that he's that he's ever in. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, if you take a look at even just the films I threw out there, The Color Purple, you know, pretty serious yeah. drama. You yep. got Predator 2 and Lethal Weapon, yep. which yep. horror, action, sci-fi. And then you got Angels yeah. in the Outfield, which is a silly kids comedy. But he is yeah. always on point. And like you said, yep. and at, he enhances everything that he's in. He really does, man. He was, I mean, he was basically the backbone of the Lethal Weapon movies. I mean, I, I think Mel Gibson's great in those too. And, and you know, great writing, Shane Black and stuff. But, but I mean, he is basically the, the backbone of those films to me. I 100% agree. I think he really carried the Lethal Weapon franchise. But uh, in Angels in the Outfield, I do. I think he, uh, for uh, for a lot of the film, he sort of carries it. But you know, like we were just talking about, there's this incredible supporting cast. So mm-hmm. luckily, he did kind of have a lot to work with. But I, I thought he just had a standout performance in this film and showed a lot of me too. Kind of like his career, he showed a lot of range. You know, he's the kind of yeah. angry, <laughs> stereotypical baseball manager. Uh, but then he's also a very c- compassionate uh, character that ends up really loving and caring for JP and Roger. I liked his arc a lot and I found him very believable. And I, I, you know, I'm a sucker for movies like this. Like I think movies like this are really cool and like, you know, they're feel good films and like, I just think that he did such a great job. He was so believable. And I I liked watching his arc. It was sort of gradual. Uh, You know, you could sort of gradually see him change and warm up to these to these kids and and become a nicer and better person throughout the course of the movie. I just I thought that Danny Glover did a great job. And I always think of him from uh, Predator 2 and Lethal Weapon, honestly. And so seeing him in a role like this just reminds me of of what an actor he is. A, A phenomenal actor. And I agree with you that the arc that he has in this film, I I really appreciate, especially because of kind of the subtlety to it. It's there's not some kind of big moment where his character changes. It just kind of gradually happens as he gets to know the the kids. And by the end of the film, he ends up adopting Roger and JP. And this is this is a really hilarious point to me and something that as a kid, I think, went over my head a little bit. But when Roger's dad says about uh, we can be a family again when the angels win the pennant. So he is 
uh, releasing Roger to be a ward of the state. And yeah. Roger doesn't realize that. And he believes his dad is serious. His, his dad's basically saying like when hell freezes over, like there's a very right. slim chance that we will be a family. And so the entire film, the plot of this movie, the reason that Roger prays for the angels to win the pennant is predicated on a misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But it leads to all, you know, it leads to everything that happens and it opens him up to all these new opportunities, which is, you know, kind of cool. Exactly. And his prayer is answered. It's just answered in a different way than he originally intended, because at the onset of the film, he wanted to be a family with his dad again. By the end of the film, he does have a family, a new family with George and JP. Which, let's be honest, he's better off because his dad sucks. Like, every time he shows up in this movie, I'm like, ooh, I hate you, you're the worst. I think that was very intentional, too. <laughs> I know, and they did a great job with it, because every time I was just like, ugh, get this guy out of here. When we meet Roger's dad, he's using his own leg as an ashtray. Yeah. And it's Come just, on, it's man. just That's disgusting. Class. Exactly. Yeah. It's just disgusting. And, uh, I mean, he can't even be honest with his, with his kid about why he's, you know, <laughs> about the fact that he's giving him up and yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this, this film, um, interestingly, I think deals with some kind of for, for a kid's film, at least some kind of heavier topics. Yeah. Like in this case, a you know a dad who doesn't really want his own son because it wasn't it was not made clear why the dad was giving him up, but it seemed like it wasn't because he couldn't take care of him. It was almost because he didn't want to. Yeah, and I mean maybe you know we only get a slight bit of detail into that, but we get the impression that his mom died and that his dad just felt like he couldn't handle it afterwards. So maybe, you know, there was some emotional baggage or whatever, but still, I mean, come on, dude, take care of you. Take care of your kid. Exactly. And then, uh, JP recalls sleeping in a car when when he was growing up. Uh, and he mentions that's why he won't ride in a car, which leads to Roger and JP in this hilarious scene being driven home on the angels bus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right. I love that. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) And of course, you get the de- you 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 have some deceased parents, but that's sort of a, a bit of a Disney trope. Like there's that yeah. there's that kind of weird uh, thing where in in Disney movies the parents tend to just be dead. But I they think one of that. the by far one of the darkest moments in here is this. I guess what was intended as an anti-smoking PSA, where yeah. At the end of the film, Al makes some comment that uh, that uh, Mel Clark is going to join the Angels in Heaven soon, and it's because he has lung cancer from smoking cigarettes. And it's always a bad idea. That's what he says. Always a bad idea. And I don't know for sure. I do, I do not remember that part in the film from when yeah, I was a kid. Either. And rewatching this, I was I was shocked. I mean, you know. Like yeah, he texted me about the it. The Ninja Turtles <laughs> would have things like say yes to pizza, say no to drugs. But I mean, this is like very concrete. Yeah. 
it it was it was a little bit darker than this, but it reminded me of um, the part in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey when Death sees that guy smoking in the store, and he's like, "See you soon." Uh, <laughs> it kind of it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. But yeah, you're right. It was kind of dark. Like, uh, but at the same time, I mean, I guess it's Disney just trying to tell kids, like, "Hey, kids, you know, Tony Danza, he's a cool dude, but he made a mistake by smoking, and you probably shouldn't do that because it's bad for you." And. Yeah, and, but it just it really came out of left field, so to speak. Yeah, it did. Uh, <laughs> well, but, it, but and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little later. But I mean, that idea was borrowed from the original um, 1951 Angels in the Outfield. It's just they added the the cause of death in this. It, one. it was. You're you're correct. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I do want to talk about, though, is the prayer scene, uh, because yeah. I was very pleasantly surprised by this. I thought it was very progressive for a Disney film uh, because when Roger is praying to God, he addresses God as either a man or a woman and says he doesn't know. And he even ends his prayer by saying amen and then adds uh, women. And I just I thought this was uh, really clever on on two fronts. One, it was progressive, kind of the idea of having um you know a deity where you don't know the gender could be either right uh and then the other was uh kind of the way that it was written and i think this is true of the entire script the movie is very much written from a children's perspective and i think it's very effective at that i think oftentimes when there are children characters the writing is pretty bad and it's very obviously written by an adult who doesn't know any kids and in this case like it seemed convincingly like stuff kids would say and do. I agree with you. Uh, I'm so glad that actually that you wrote that little part about our women in the show notes, because I'll confess that when I was watching the movie, he said that, but I, I didn't understand what he said. And I was like, what did he just say about women? So I actually kind of missed that part. I'm glad that you, that you wrote that down so I could be like, Oh, okay. But yeah, you're right. That was fairly progressive. Yeah, so I uh, props to Disney for that. And then this is something that I ended up, I didn't notice this while I was watching the film, but when Roger is praying and saying if there's a God in the sky outside of his window, you see a Mickey Mouse in the stars. Yep, just that, that little hidden branding there. They had to shoehorn that in. So you mentioned the 1951 version. Yeah, right. Uh, Both of us watched that this week. So what what are kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, going into doing this movie for the podcast, I didn't even realize the Angels in the Outfield that I knew from childhood was a remake. I was surprised. I was looking for um, how I was going to watch Angels in the Outfield this week. I thought I had a VHS uh, leftover from childhood, but I did not. Uh, so then I had to find it. Uh, and I came across the the 1951 film. Uh, so that was pretty neat. It kind of took me by out of left field. I didn't realize it was a remake. So then I watched it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I love, I like older films anyway. I like films of that era that came out in 51. And uh, it reminded me in a lot of ways of kind of the same tone and feel as uh, Miracle on 34th Street which has been twice remade, but I always really liked the original miracle on 34th street. And and in a lot of ways, uh, it reminded me of that, uh, in a good ways. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was, I expected it to be maybe more different from the remake than it was, but a lot of the main plot points carried over, 
But at the same time, it was told from a different perspective and with sort of a different outlook. Like it, it kind of had a different, I don't know if you want to use the word moral, but the theme of the film seemed to be presented differently. 100%. Um, and I, like you like you said, a lot of the main plot points do carry over, but to me, the 51 version does feel like a completely different movie just because of the refreshed perspective that you get from it. And even it's a different team. So in the 1951 version, it's the Pittsburgh pirates and the perspective that it's told from is uh, from an adult perspective. Yes. And, but I, so I, I liked that a lot. Actually, I, I love the 1951 version, but I think the kind of child perspective uh, is very effective and compelling in the remake. And I think that's one of the, the main differences, right? In is that the, uh, is that Roger is sort of the main character in the remake, whereas the, um, his name's Guffy in the 1951 version, but he's the manager character is the main character really in, uh, the 1951 version. And there isn't an, uh, an orphan child in that movie that, you know, prays for the team and all that stuff, but she's much less the, the protagonist than Roger is in the remake. Exactly. It just sort of kind of flip flops those characters. So, yeah, you know, the manager is the central focus of the 1951 version and the, uh, orphan girl is the kind of secondary character. Whereas in the remake, the manager is the secondary character and the uh, foster kids are the primary focus. And while I really enjoyed her performance um, and thought she was great character, they kind of shoehorn in a love interest in the 51 version. And they just didn't fool with that in the 94 uh, version, which I actually kind of appreciated. Like the, the love interest was kind of, it seemed a little um, standard Hollywood in the 51 version. Yeah. It didn't seem like there was a point other than, the 1950s Hollywood notion that a film wasn't complete yeah. unless there was a romance subplot. Right. And I thought the actress was great. Yeah, I, I thought she was great as well. I just thought kind of the subplot was a little bit unnecessary. Yeah. And with that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will keep discussing Angels in the Outfield. Dad, um... When we gonna be a family again? A boy searching for a future. I'd say when the Angels win the pennant. And Williams and Norton collide, and the catch is blown. A coach running from his past. Are you cracking up, or is this a repeat of Cincinnati? No, no, it's nothing like that. And a team that's their only prayer. There's a thing called talent. They don't have it. God, if there is a God. Just call me Al. No one can see me or hear me but you. Do you believe in angels? Yes! That must have been those chili dogs I ate before the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah! yeah. Unbelievable! 
really do see something, don't you? Yeah! Make some kind of signal. I'll go like that, okay? Here we go again. Real angels. I know it sounds crazy. I'm relieving you of your management responsibility. Somewhere between losing hope. You can't go through life thinking everyone you meet will one day let you down. And finding the courage. You can call it angels. I won't play for anyone but George Knox. You can call it faith. That goes for me too. You can call it whatever you like. They gave the world something to believe in. I got nothing left. I got an angel with you right now. Danny Glover. Tony Danza. Even though you can't see us. And Christopher Lloyd. Always watching. Disney's Angels in the Outfield. And we're back and we're talking about the 1994 Disney film Angels in the Outfield. It could happen. You gotta believe. You gotta believe. So those were the taglines of the film. And JP's character says it could happen seven times throughout this film, although it felt like he said it 700 times. Yeah, um, but I did like it. I, this was this was a movie where as I was watching it, I was like, you know, it's a per, it's pretty standard kid movie fare for the time. Uh, it's got a it's got a message it's trying to put forth, but it's like a really hopeful, feel good message. It's you know, it's a movie in the end that's about and that's kind of one of the differences between this movie and the the original movie is that the original movie felt sort of like a like a morality play in in the vein of like a Christmas Carol, where it was all about Guffy, the manager um, changing from being a tough, swearing, mean person to being a nice person who likes people and is good to people. Whereas this movie was all about the concept of faith and believing and, you know, yes, believing in, in God or a higher power, but also believing in, in believing in the possibilities of, of what could happen, believing in uh, yourself and believing in others. Uh, I just thought that was a really, a really uplifting message behind this film. Agreed. And even though JP does kind of spew, it could happen quite a bit. It never to me feels annoying. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I thought JP was a very endearing and very likable character. Oh, yeah. He was a cool and, little kid. Yeah, he, he was a cool kid. Uh, and when kind of like you were saying there, one element that I really enjoyed about Angels in the Outfield is the way that it has this very kind of hopeful, positive, feel good message. But it doesn't feel cliche because ultimately what Roger is originally hoping for at the beginning of the film doesn't work out, yeah. but it works out a different way, which is ultimately better for him. Yeah, it's cool. And, and, you know, it was just uplifting to see. I liked, I liked the interactions between Tony Dance's character and Danny Glover's character, uh, much the same way that I liked the interactions between their earlier versions of those characters in the 1951 film, you know, seeing them kind of have this strained relationship due to past run-ins and then kind of come to 
I don't know if you'd say believe in one another, but I guess that's what you'd say. They come to believe in one another and have respect for each other. I love the part when Tony Danza's character stands up and says, you know, I'm not going to play for anybody else other than him, other than Danny Glover's character, whose name I can't remember right now. Oops. Uh, George Knox. Yeah. George Knox. Yeah. That was a, that was a very powerful moment. Uh, and that actually entire subplot just absolutely cracked me up. And that is another one of the plot points that carries over from the 1951 film. But the <laughs> uh, the so the voice of the angels. There is some storyline about a uh, ranch wilder. There's some storyline that ranch used to be the manager for the angels and so even in his broadcast, he's very antagonistic towards the angels. And it seems like there's bad blood between him and George Knox. Yeah. And so he overhears something about angels being on the field, not the player angels, but angels from heaven. And he interviews JP about it, even though Roger had told JP not to tell anyone. <laughs> and uh, so there's this story that runs in the newspaper about angels helping out the angels players and what was so hilarious about that to me was the adults in the film all just buy into it and there's a press conference about george knox and kind of his future with the angels because the uh, like the team owner finds out that george knox believes these two kids are kind of good luck charms yeah and that was a major difference between the 1994 version and the 51 version is because, like you said, in the 94 version, when it came out that they were angels and stuff, people like got into it. And, and not everybody, but most people seem to kind of buy into it. Whereas in the 1951 version, when it comes out that Guffy, the, the, the manager character for the Pirates, talks to angels... People act like that's the biggest deal in the world. They're so upset. It's all over the news. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, granted, I wasn't around in 1951, but I just feel like if today a news story broke about some baseball team's manager talking to angels before games, people would be like, all right, cool. Sounds good. Are they winning? Like, I mean, you know, like, I just don't think anybody would care <laughs> personally. Yeah, I, I really think it would be about the bottom line. Like, okay, so what's the odd. record? I just found that very odd that people were so upset by that. I was like, I just don't think, I just feel like I would be particularly nonplussed by that. Like, I just don't think I would care. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was odd in the 51 version. And I thought it was odd for the other reasons in the, in the 94 yeah. version. But that press conference was, it, it was, it was pretty funny, but it ultimately turned into a very emotional scene. When Mel Clark stands up and says that the only person that he'll play for is George Knox. And then the rest of the team stands up with him and Roger and JP do as well. Yeah, I, uh, I yeah. really thought that that whole scene was was great. Um, stuff like that is very moving to me. I was I'll, I'll, I'll admit to being a little emotional during that scene. It was very heartwarming. And apparently the 90s, as you, Wes, pointed out in the show notes, it was a very popular time for baseball and sports movies. 
Yeah, especially like little kid sports movies. I feel like they there was a time period between 92 and 95 when there were so many movies about like little kids playing sports. And I just listed some of the big ones I could think of. Maybe there are others. But Ladybugs came out in 1992. That's a, a soccer movie with uh, Rodney Dangerfield and Jonathan Brandis. Uh, the Mighty Ducks, obviously, in 92. Very classic hockey film. The Sandlot, which uh, has been this topic of a previous Celluloid Fiends episode and is a really classic movie. Uh, Rookie of the Year, which is one of my personal favorites, 93. Uh, Little Big League in 94 as well as, obviously, Angel in the Outfield in 94, Little Giants in 94, and then in 95, The Big Green. Which I'm really glad that you included The Big Green on there because some of the other ones on on that list that you had there, like The Mighty Ducks, The Sandlot, and Little, Little Giants are really popular, but The Big Green is this, I feel like, strangely overlooked yeah. kid's sports movie. And that was always one of my favorite movies as a kid. I liked it because I was a soccer player. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, I So one that is not necessarily a, a movie starring kids playing sports, uh, but is another Disney sports film starring Tony Danza, is the made-for-TV wonderful world of Disney film, the garbage-picking, field-goal-kicking Philadelphia phenomenon, which follows a... Bad. <laughs> right a little bit of a tongue twister uh, but that is a highly underrated film about a garbage truck driver who ends up becoming a kicker for the philadelphia eagles okay i've heard of that and movie, but i've never seen it <laughs> if you can track down a copy i highly recommend watching it it's it's kind of weirdly not, i don't think it's on any streaming services i don't think it ever had a dvd release i have a vhs copy of it, it but so it's a little difficult to find but if you can if you can find a copy definitely check that one out movies that are only available on vhs are right up my alley as you know so <laughs> yeah i mean you, you got a couple of v- vcrs so you're you're all set but what do you think about the 90s made these kind of kids sports films so popular hmm. i don't know i would assume I would assume that it's just based on the success of some of the early ones. I mean, particularly the Mighty Ducks was uh, a phenomenal success, at least in my memory. I've come to look back on certain movies from my youth and realize they weren't quite as successful as I had imagined when I was a kid. But the Mighty Ducks, uh, as far as I know, was a a phenomenally successful movie, and that came out in 92. Uh, Ladybugs came out that same year, but I feel like maybe is less well-remembered now. But I feel like Mighty Ducks certainly did a lot to kick that off. And then The Sandlot, once again, just became such a classic film. I, I just feel like people realized that they that was something that would be popular and they could make, you know, they could make money off of and there was an audience for it. Uh, and also, though, if you think about it, baseball films in general had a pretty big uh, run there in in that that time period. I don't I don't have exact years written down, but I can think of like a league of their own and Mr. Baseball and Mr. Destiny. And, uh, you guys mentioned on the Sandlot episode, the, the major league films and all that stuff. So, I mean, you know, field of dreams, the natural. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there were a ton. So yeah, I don't know. You have any thoughts on what caused that particular run of kids sports films? 
you know, I'm not entirely sure. I think that it could be sort of a an evolution of films like the the Goonies and yeah. and Home Alone and uh, like E.T. Hook, which were these kind of kid adventure films, right? And you had yeah. these, you know, like a kid or a group of children who were going on this grand adventure, and it sort of is like a similar concept but more grounded, you know, because kind of be, being the underdogs and then coming back to kind of win the championship, some concept like that, or even kind of being the good luck charm that, yeah. you know, inspires a team to, uh, you know, win the pennant, I think is very uh, empowering for kids and, and seems more attainable than something like meeting an alien. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's true, I guess. But I will say, I don't know what caused that run of films, but I remember being into all of them. Like all those movies we just mentioned, I loved them when I was a kid. And the funny thing about that is I played t-ball a little bit, and then, you know, I did a few other things, uh, karate, which I did for a while and then and back at now. Uh, and, and then I started playing soccer later. But as a kid, I wasn't particularly involved in, in sports like a lot of kids were. Like I knew a lot of kids in elementary and middle school who were much more involved in sports than me, but still somehow I just really loved those movies, even though I wasn't necessarily super into sports at the time. I was, I was big into basketball. I didn't play a ton of soccer. I never played baseball, you know, except for just like going in the backyard with my, my dad and my sister. But I loved a lot of these sports films and a couple that we didn't mention there were actually two Angels in the Outfields sequels. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, one of them I have seen, it was like Angels in the End Zone, which oh, was a football one. I have heard of that, actually, now that you say it. <laughs> and I can't remember what the... There was another baseball one, and it actually did star Christopher Lloyd still. He, re- he reprised his role. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, Angels in the End Zone was not quite as good. You don't say. It was <laughs> no, it was it was a decided step down. Uh, now speaking of which, I'm flabbergasted at the at the kind of critic and audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, I, I and agree. I kind of want to hear your take on that. Well, I mean, so I don't know. I did really enjoy this movie. I guess I'm kind of, I want to not say too much because at some point we're probably going to rate this bad boy. But I, uh, but I will say, I guess I could understand how people might just see this as sort of a run-of-the-mill kids movie. Uh, which I could see that being kind of fair. I mean, if you look at it just based on its plot and kind of the, the feel to the movie. But but at the same time, there's a, there's something I think that's kind of special about this movie, and I think a lot of it has to do with the with the cast, which we've already mentioned was great. I mean, I let's just be honest: there are little kid actors who are not very good and can really annoy you throughout the course of a film. But neither of the the child actors in this movie were that for me. I thought they were both great. Like that, you you really you liked these kids, and uh, they they did a great job acting. They didn't annoy you. Uh, I just think the phenomenal cast, I think just sort of the hopeful and optimistic tone of this movie make it special. So maybe those kinds of things are 
a little more intangible and harder to put into a into a critic's score, possibly. But yeah, I, I was shocked, especially by that critic score, thirty three percent, much lower than I would have expected. Yeah, because I mean, I I didn't expect it to be a one hundred percent, but I definitely thought it would be higher than thirty three. And like you, I don't I don't want to give my score away, but. When when I saw that, I started thinking about other kids' movies that I've seen, kind of past and and present, and there were there have been some very well received children's pictures that I thought were far worse than Angels in the Outfield. Yeah, like uh, one that I did not buy the hype into was Frozen. Never saw it. I would not. I don't think I could. I could recommend it. Uh, you know, hopefully we don't lo- lose too many listeners over over my <laughs> opinion on that. But yeah, I thought I thought it was kind of just overrated. And overrated. yeah, I mean, just like when comparing this film to other kids' movies, I, I mean, I think it's kind of near the near the top of a lot of the children's movies and and particularly sports movies. Now, I will say, and it, and it's true, and I think that's something that's just great about films. So this is not a, a criticism by any means. I think this is something that's great. But you mentioned already that you kind of had a lot of affinity for this movie from your childhood. Uh, and, and I think that sort of thing carries over into how you look back on a movie. And I think for me, I can think of movies like, uh, here's one that it'll be a real shocker to hear us talk about. But when I was a kid, I, and now loved masters of the universe and it wasn't until many years later that i found out that to a large population of people that is considered a bad film and i just couldn't believe it and and even now watching masters of the universe i just can't fathom how people don't think that movie is great so i do think that maybe um you know the the fondness we have for films in our childhood does carry over into our into our adult viewing of them and i think that's Honestly, that's great. I wouldn't have it any other way for movies like like I just mentioned about Masters of the Universe. The, I think you make an excellent point there because I definitely just grew up watching and, and re-watching this film. So part of my enjoyment probably does derive from that nostalgia factor. But uh, even even outside of that, I, I do think it is a, it's a very good film. Although yeah. there, I'm curious if there was anything that you... Th- thought could have been improved about this because i i have a few thoughts well i mean i don't know if i had any particular oh that should have been done better moments really i just i thought it was all very good i I did think in a lot of ways it was just sort of a standard children's movie disney movie fair i mean you know everything about it kind of seemed like standard fair that just happened to be brought up to me very much by the quality of the acting in this film. Uh, So no particular part that I thought needed to be improved upon. Yeah. I I can't really think of anything in particular that I point that I just thought, "Mm, no, don't like that. Uh, But I am curious to hear your thoughts. I, I don't know that I would necessarily make this change, but I think this would have kind of provided a different, take on the film but for a lot of the different moments in the in the movie especially kind of early on when the angels start 
helping out the angels, as weird as that sounds to say. <laughs> but it you could almost think it was just like a spectacular play by one of the baseball players. And Roger is sort of kind of imagining that there are forces at play that are uh, kind of helping the angels to win the pennant and help him to kind of have a family. But then there's one particular part when (laughs) like an angel gets the ball, like the baseball and just kind of makes it zoom all around the entire field (laughs) in, in such a way that it makes it very clear that there are supernatural angels. And I think if you to cut that scene out, you could almost have this perspective where Roger was kind of just imagining that these angels existed because he's the only one until the end when JP sees an angel, it could happen uh, happen. (laughs) that can actually see the angels. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. And I do remember the scene you're talking about. It was a little over the top, but I think that was sort of the kind of zany humor (laughs) that, that children love. I mean, let's be honest. If you're a kid, you're like, ah, the ball's bouncing everywhere. Yeah, and you know, even as an adult, one of my favorite scenes is when Al shows up in Rogers in his soda cup, yeah, cool. and you see Christopher Lloyd's face just kind of composed of of Coke. Yeah. And I mean, I th- I thought that was actually some pretty excellent CGI, of, especially for the time. Yeah, it was. Um, and I was just thinking that, like, they, that's another thing about this movie. They really wanted to make sure to use that early era CGI, boy. But, uh, but you know, it didn't look, it really didn't look bad. I'm, I'm notoriously critical of the look of CGI in the late 90s and early 2000s. But this, not bad, actually, now that you say that. Yeah, that was something that really struck me because when the angels first showed up, my first thought was, oh, no, we're going to have some terrible CGI. And you know what? It was definitely not realistic. Yeah. But I was even thinking as I was watching that about some 90s films that came out even later than that, that probably had much higher budgets that where the CG was pretty bad, like uh, Spawn. Uh, I, I love that movie, but there is some terrible CG in that. And that came out probably four years or something like that after angels in the outfield yeah i agree with you i'm just uh sorry i got i got distracted because i was looking through i was looking through your trivia here on the show notes and i noticed that you mentioned something about um about gene autry (laughs) and so i was actually reading it over uh just because gene autry is one of my dad's all-time favorite dudes the uh singing cowboy country music and film star gene autry Oh yeah, so uh, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So the uh, the Angels owner Hank Murphy is loosely inspired by Gene Autry, and uh, that is something I, I did not know. And I feel like it sort of explains why the owner is has a, a a bit of a twang to his voice and walks around with a massive cowboy hat on. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think anything about it because I grew up on a farm. He just seemed like a regular dude to me, but that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I didn't really think a lot about it, but I mean, he, you could tell that the angel's owner was, was probably not from Cali. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's interesting. I did. I did not realize that. That's cool. Yeah. 
Um, and apparently the Anaheim Angels, when they won the 2002 World Series, they dedicated that win to Gene Autry, nice. who had passed away in October of 1998. Nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, this movie yeah. reminded me. I um, So, like, I didn't grow up in a household that really watched sports very much. Like, I remember my dad was... A, when Dale Earnhardt was alive, my dad was really into NASCAR. And uh, then after Dale Earnhardt died, I don't know that we ever watched another race. And then my dad also would watch Braves games on occasion. But we didn't really grow up in a house with sports. And so even though I, there are sports that I like, I like soccer, I like baseball, uh, I like boxing, um, and any really any kind of combat sports, I just can't like... I don't regularly keep up with them. I'm not good at keeping up with sports just because I didn't grow up that with that being part of my life. But anytime I watch a movie like this, I do get really into the whole baseball feel. I think baseball is just a great game. I love going to baseball games, you know, like locally, like the like the Bulls and stuff like that and seeing the Durham Bulls. Uh, it's just a lot of fun for me. And so watching a movie like this has that added layer of fun where you just kind of feel, I don't know, that kind of excitement of being at the ballpark sort of. I'm sort of the opposite. I really enjoy basketball and and football. I enjoy going to baseball games, but I'm not as keen on on watching them on TV. But I adore baseball movies. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I just really like them. Yeah, baseball. I was thinking that as I was watching this. Somehow baseball just makes a great movie. Uh, Do you think part of it is that there are a lot of people who don't want to sit through kind of the the lulls in a baseball game, but enjoy the highlights, which are shown in baseball movies. Yeah, probably. But I mean, that's true of a lot of sports movies. You know what I mean? If you watch the Rocky movies, the boxing bouts are always much more exciting in a a Rocky movie than they are in real life. Uh, But yeah, I think that's probably part of it. And I just kind of think that baseball has sort of a storied history. I mean, any any sport, I guess, does. But baseball just kind of has this, like, inextricable link. It feels like with America and, like, 20th century American history and, and American culture that I think just appeals to people, even if you're not necessarily a fan of the sport. It's America's pastime. It is America's pastime. And the other thing is also that a lot of these baseball movies – and sports movies in general, even if they feature a sport, they're usually not about that. Yeah, that's it's funny. usually kind of the <laughs> it's it's kind of the uh, framework through which the more important story is told. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we rate this bad boy? OK, uh, I'm going to tell you that I have reevaluated my rating for this film as we've been talking about it. I went into this episode prepared to give it a a three out of five on a scale of zero to five stars. I was going to give it a three uh, because I do think so. I I really enjoyed this movie and I remember it fondly from my childhood. So it's a movie that I like. I think is a lot of fun. I could see going back to it again. And I really enjoyed watching the original version that I didn't even know existed before. Um, So while I do think it's an enjoyable movie and and one that's a lot of fun, it, it is at least in terms of the plot and kind of what the substance of the movie is. It is just sort of a standard children's movie fare for the time. I mean, I was thinking about it, and, and, and this is the kind of movie where in different hands and 
um, with different a different team behind it would have been a really run of the mill paint by numbers movie. But at the same time, talking about the film, especially the acting in this movie, we've talked about Danny Glover and we've talked about um, you know Joseph Gordon-Levitt and and people like that and Christopher Lloyd, how great they were. I really think that the cast of this movie did a lot to bring up what could have been a very run-of-the-mill movie and make it something a little more special. And so because of that, I'm actually going to give this a 3.5 on a scale of 0 to 5 stars. This is a 3.5 movie for me. It's a lot of fun, and I enjoyed revisiting it. I have a lot of similar thoughts to you. I'm going to give it a 4. I I do agree that it's kind of undeniably a little bit predictable in spots. I don't necessarily think that's too much of a bad thing, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the acting and the writing really elevates this above a lot of the kids movies that were coming out at the time. And even I would argue over a lot of kids movies today. Yeah. The, like the kids acting in this film are actually quite uh, competent and I mean, that's it's difficult oftentimes to find kids who can show a broad range of emotions. And I thought, uh, you know, these kids really nailed it. And the other thing is all the characters are very unique, even secondary and tertiary characters who you only see briefly on screen really have a lot of flair and distinct personalities that you can see, especially a lot of the baseball players and uh, even even ranch the the voice of the angels uh, and uh, I mean I think it's always just really powerful when you can say that there's a film that Christopher Lee at uh, kind of the peak of or Christopher Lloyd at the peak of his <laughs> we were talking about Hammer films earlier um, at the peak of his <laughs> exactly very different Christopher uh, <laughs> but Christopher Lloyd at the kind of peak of his his career is only in this movie for a very brief period of time. And yet it is still a, a, a very fun, a, a charming film. I think that really speaks volumes about a movie. Yeah, I agree. I'm really glad that we revisited this one. Me too. And uh, one thing that you just brought up made me that made me think about, you know, you were talking about how even the secondary and tertiary characters are very memorable. One dude who is in this movie a lot at the first, and then they just sort of phase him out, but was really kind of a standout in my mind was the kind of goofy pitcher that eventually they kind of bring in Tony Danza, and he kind of has his little comeback and becomes their main pitcher. But at the first of the film, Danza's on the injured list, and the pitcher that they have is sort of this like goofy dude who like sets the pitch a bunch of times and. He just really was a real standout to me, even though he had a relatively minor role. His acting was very, it was very subtle. Yeah. He was just super quirky. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wished that he'd been in the uh, film a little bit more in the, in the second half, but it was very clearly to kind of set up Mel Clark's comeback. Yeah, for sure. Which, you know, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is just a very uh, feel-good, empowering film. And I, w- one thing that I really hope is that kids today are, are somehow still able to experience this movie. Because even though some of the CG hasn't aged too well, 
I still think the message of it is uh, is important, and and I think I think it holds up really well. I agree. Yeah. So that's our show for tonight. Thank you guys very much for listening. If you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review, and give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at Celluloid Fiends and at Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And you can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can read my writing on film at Cup of Bo. You can check out my tech website, techuplife.com. And you should hit both of myself and Wes up uh, on social media if you know us personally or, you know, hit us up on our Celluloid Fiends social media because like we mentioned at the start of this episode this was a fan pick and uh, you know we've Wes and I have a huge list of films that we'd like to review but we really want to take a look at some movies that you guys want us to review so let us know your listener picks yeah and and not only that but um, another thing that I've often said on here and, and it is true is that we are we are film fans like that we love talking about movies and so uh, even if you don't necessarily want to suggest a, a listener pick, we would love for people who are listening just to kind of interact with us on our social media and kind of let us know what you thought about the films or anything like that. So definitely make sure to, to hit us up on social media. Uh, we would just love to to talk to other film fans about it. So this is Wes Clifton signing out. Once again, you can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston. If you want to check out my fiction writing, you can do so at my website, wdclifton.wordpress.com. Just a quick plug here at the end. Um, I just recently had a poem published in the newest issue of Weird Book magazine. Weird Book is uh, is a publication that I've appeared in a couple times before. I'm a big fan of Weird Book. They put out a lot of great stories in the sword and sorcery, fantasy, horror, weird fiction overall genre. And they also include poetry, which is nice. So in, in Weird Book 43, uh, my poem, King's Pyre, uh, is published there and I'm, I'm really proud of this poem so if you want if that sounds like something that would appeal to you you can check that out it's available both in paperback and as an ebook on amazon.com i will for sure give that a read and all you celluloid fiends listeners out there should do the same much appreciated so thanks again for listening guys and remember be kind rewind Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.